0: This is a friendly warning to the members of the History of World War II podcast. Although I have been listening diligently to the Coffee Break French podcast, my mastery of the French language has not altered in any significant way. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 16, Behind Enemy Lines. In the spring of 1940, nine months after the declaration of war of the major European powers, life in France was returning to something akin to normalcy. The lack of actual fighting in Western Europe, or for the English, the Phony War, the French, drôle de Guerre, the Germans, the Sitzkrieg, allowed those in Paris to delude themselves into thinking perhaps this war unlike the last one, would take place over there, or really, just anywhere but here. Yes, life in Paris, envied by most around the world, was returning to normal, it seems, by the sheer will of its residents. Restaurants were busy. The one and only Josephine Baker brought huge crowds to the Champs-Élysées with a song and dance parade and the American Eugene Bullard's Le Duc Jazz Club performed before sold-out audiences. Life in Paris was becoming once again an affair of the heart, with snatches of gossip going back and forth about who was now seeing whom, and did the lover or lovers left behind know their new status. But during all this other-worldness, the Germans, now done with surging east and then north, suddenly turned their attention west, taking the Low Countries, pushing the British Expeditionary Force off of the continent, capturing hundreds of thousands of French soldiers, and thereby clearing their way to Paris. Token resistance was still offered, but only by those in the field, and not for very long, their commanders having already accepted defeat. The people of Paris and France in general fled west and south, by the millions, which provided Luftwaffe pilots with targets too tempting to avoid. And with the Germans showing the world the destructive power of aircraft, William Bullitt, American ambassador to France, begged U.S. President Roosevelt to send planes to help slow down and maybe turn back the German onslaught. Roosevelt agreed, but would have to send them through Canada, citing the Neutrality Acts, which tied his hands. But before the logistics could be worked out, the gesture was made pointless. German troops marched into Paris on June 14, 1940. Before war was declared over the invasion of Poland, about 30,000 Americans lived in Paris, the largest American contingent in Europe. But on September third, the day Britain declared war on Germany, American Ambassador William Bullitt advised all U.S. citizens to leave France. Despite this warning, 5,000 or so of them remained behind. This was mostly due to France not being directly attacked, and or their hope or belief, the same hope that rested in almost every French heart, that the Maginot line would prove itself worthy of all the time and money put into it. This love affair with all things French started during the War of Independence, when the Marquis de Lafayette had called for French volunteers to help fight the British, and around 17,000 of his countrymen answered the call. But for other Americans, Paris was simply a part of their life, and they refused to leave this cultural capital of Europe. Or, in more blunt terms, at least in regards to the homosexuals and blacks, they were experiencing a freedom that was not available back in the States, and so were determined to stick it out. The 5,000 or so Americans that stayed in Paris after the French government left and the Germans came in were of all sorts, rich, poor, black, white, artists, and lay people. Their number also cut across the political spectrum, Democrat, Republican, communist, fascist, and the apolitical. They came from almost every profession as well, even swindlers and gangsters. To understand the mindset of the Americans who decided to remain in Paris, as much as that is possible, it's best to cast one's mind back to June 1940. Poland was conquered and its capital destroyed in mere weeks. France's neighbors fell within an equally brief period of time. The British were pushed out of the immediate contest, lucky to have reclaimed 300,000 or so of their men From the beaches of Dunkirk. The French military itself was pushed back on their heels, which left the Americans protected by the vast ocean between themselves and the German military, their leader Roosevelt consumed with his unprecedented third campaign for the presidency. It was as if Hitler could point to a place on the map and his vaunted Wehrmacht could take it with ease. The Germans were coming, had come to Paris and would be the new masters. No one was going to help those remaining in Paris. Life there was now to be endured. It would go on, but only in whatever form the victorious Germans decreed. Words like collusion, submission, and collaboration were defined in this new light. And at midnight, the bells from the cathedral of Notre Dame tolled, signaling a new day, June 14th. 1940. At the beginning of the war, American reporters flocked to Paris, but they weren't the only ones. Those who worked for the American field service ambulances and were willing found their travel and pay covered by Anne Morgan, the sister of New York financier J.P. Morgan. She was also its organizer. During the Battle of France, her paid help took wounded French and British soldiers away from the front lines. Along with the reporters and the ambulatory care workers, another group of young men crossed the Atlantic, and they were not artists or businessmen. When Nazi forces moved west on May 10th, hundreds of young American men came to France to fight Nazism and to help protect democracy. In fact, these men came in such numbers that the French government could not process them fast enough to incorporate them into their resistance plans. The French Air Minister, General Aldebert de Chambray, showed the Americans around Paris, but then their processing collapsed somewhere along the way, and few, if any, Americans were able to fly against the Germans. Many ended up in Canada, flying for the Royal Canadian Air Force. It must be said that the American Embassy did not protect the black Americans who remained in Paris. Only after Hitler visited the city on June 24, 1940, did the Nazis begin to codify their attitudes towards blacks and their, quote, degenerate Jewish Negro jazz, unquote. So, soon after Hitler's departure, all foreign nationals had to be counted, but no one was surprised by this gesture of German efficiency. However, the word thereafter went out that the black Americans were required to report to the nearest police station. Although the situation was tense and no one really knew what was happening or going to happen, the American embassy didn't raise a finger. There was no formal protest brought to the German military commander of France. Many of those black Americans were then sent to concentration camps, some to internment camps, and others just held. The point was made. No more jazz music by blacks was to be performed. That is, except for Josephine Baker, the well-known singer and dancer. And that was the Germans' mistake. She had been spying for the French on the Germans even before the war started. So, when the Germans came to Paris, Baker, unsure of her treatment, her husband was Jewish, went to her chateau in the country to the south. She snuck out of the city dressed as a Red Cross nurse. When it became clear that she was going to be left alone, at least for now, she joined the resistance by smuggling secret documents in between her sheet music and helped resistance leaders, once the Germans got on their trail, by disguising them as band members. Her profession demanded travel, and the lives she saved were many, and the intel she gathered, astounding. Though her life, like everyone's in the resistance, was at risk, Baker considered the Nazis just a more fervent kind of racial hatred that she experienced in the States. But this time, she wasn't going to run. But the French government was. The French government was leaving Paris for tour. Paul Renault, the Prime Minister, hoped to continue the fight from there, but would soon be out of office. But before he left, Renault, thinking of the City of Light, declared Paris an open city and asked Ambassador Bullitt to talk to the Germans, hoping it wouldn't end up like Warsaw, bombed beyond recognition. Bullitt, with as much love for France and Paris as for his own country, quickly agreed. In effect, Renault made William Christian Bullitt the mayor of Paris. So the American waited for the Germans in his wine cellar of his chateau. Meanwhile, he shot off a communique to FDR, Quote, I have talked with the provisional governor of Paris, who is the single government official remaining, and it may be that, at a given moment, I, as the only representative of the diplomatic corps remaining in Paris, will be obliged, in the interest of public safety, to take control of the city, pending arrival of the German army. Renault and Mandel, just before their departure, requested me to do this, if necessary. Unquote. It would become necessary. Late on Thursday, June thirteenth, nineteen 1940, two lone men walked the empty streets of Paris, Robert Murphy, the American ambassador's counselor, and Roscoe Hillencotter, the naval attaché commander. Two million Parisians and most of the 30,000 Americans had fled. The rest remained behind locked doors and drawn curtains. They knew, like Murphy did, that German panzer divisions had already surrounded Paris and were just waiting to enter the city on the morrow. The night sky was clear, which it hadn't been for weeks now, as French and British officials had been burning files in huge piles outside their offices along the Quai d'Orsay. Also, the Standard Oil Company's petroleum man, William Crampton, had set his last stocks on fire after getting permission from Murphy. The counselor saw no good reason as to why the fuel should be handed over to the Nazis. What the frightened Americans didn't take into consideration on the eve of the occupation was that Nazi ideology valued the French and the Americans more than they did the Polish. There was no way any Slavic race could expect fair treatment or respect from Hitler. But those people of Western Europe were in a different class. The Americans in France, and the French themselves, once they surrendered, would be treated fairly, or at least better than the Poles, as long as they acknowledged the master race. Those in Berlin certainly wanted Paris up and running, and knew they needed its citizens compliant for a smooth transition. Of course, the Germans didn't come out and say any of this just yet. Hence the fear and, trepidation. and as the Americans, especially those that worked in the U.S. Embassy, did not know the Germans would end up working hard to show their leniency after they had Paris under control, the more hostile of its employees to the Nazi cause spent their last few free days issuing just over 1,000 red certificates, which indicated houses and businesses owned by Americans, but also issued passports and visas to Jewish refugees. This was directly against State Department orders. So was creating safe routes to help those same persecuted people make it safely across the Atlantic. But they did it anyway. The all important red certificates allowed the American run entities to remain open. Some of these included the American Hospital in the western suburb of Neuilly, the American Library in the Rue de Turenne, the American Cathedral on the Avenue George V, the American Church on the Quai d'Orsay, the Rotary Club, the American Chamber of Commerce, and the American newspaper, the Paris Herald Tribune, which put out editions until June 12th, the day German forces arrived at the city's edge. These American organizations would stay open, for now, to all American and compliant French citizens. As stated, the Americans were just as uneasy as their French hosts, but as noncombatants, they were determined to retain their possessions and way of life. For example, the French born but naturalized American millionaire, Charles Badeau, continued to do business after the war started and during the occupation. He knew his history well enough to know that even the Germans would want and need the daily services, production, and normalcy of the country that they now controlled. But he also had an eye for the day after the Germans were gone. There would be, once again, a professional life to be had. Then there's Sylvia Beach, who founded and operated the English language bookshop, Shakespeare and Company, for American, French, and British writers. Her shop struggled financially for years, but gained notoriety after publishing James Joyce's Ulysses in 1922, when he couldn't find an English publisher who would. Then, during the latter 1920s and early 1930s, hers became a must-visit place for writers and artists of all kinds. And as she had used the last of her mother's money to start her business, she wasn't going anywhere unless at the end of a gun. That did not happen until the end of 1941, and later she would be interned for six months before being released, during which time she had hid as many of her books as she could. The shop, sadly, would never reopen. Clara Longworth de Chambras was one of the founders of the American Library of Paris. Her Franco-American son, Count René de Chambras, was married to the daughter of Pierre Laval, the Vichy Prime Minister. This connection allowed her to keep the library open, not only after war broke out, but even after the U.S. joined the Allies. Her husband, we've already mentioned, Count Alderbert de Chambras, a direct descendant of the Marquis de Lafayette, worked hard in a passive-aggressive political game against the German hierarchy to keep the American hospital of Paris, which Germany wanted, out of their hands. The count was immeasurably assisted by the hospital's chief surgeon, Dr. Sumner Jackson, who resisted from day one. To his way of thinking, his life and the lives of his family were secondary to resisting the evils of Nazism. But the person at center stage of the history of Paris at this moment was the U.S. ambassador to France, William Bullitt. Coming from a line of lawyers and railroad magnates who could trace their family lines from Patrick Henry and Pocahontas, Bullitt would enjoy being a rich young man, spending time with women, and spending money on whatever he craved. As his mother's side was originally German-Jewish, Bullet would grow up speaking English and French at home with equal ease. Later, he would learn German while traveling through that country. Putting his language skills to work, Bullitt would travel through most of the belligerent countries during the Great War as a correspondent of the Philadelphia Public Ledger. But then the young Bullet got to see the uglier side of life and politics when he went to work for the intelligence services, which got him noticed by Woodrow Wilson, who took him along for the Paris Peace Conference at the Great War's end. But it wasn't long before Bullitt, seeing which way the wind was blowing, as the victorious Allies dealt the Germans one humiliation after another, decided to resign over the Versailles Treaty. Upon leaving, he wrote to Wilson, This isn't a treaty. I can see at least 11 wars in it, But as the world was to find out, it only took one. As Bullitt came from a rich family, work was not his only option. Instead, he wrote a novel called It's Not Done in 1925, and it did reasonably well. He then married Louise Bryant, whose late husband was John Reed, who had covered the Russian Revolution in Ten Days That Shook the World. They had one child, Anne, and they divorced. In a bit of payback, Bullitt joined up with Austrian Sigmund Freud, and together they wrote a psychological study of Woodrow Wilson. But it would be closer to the truth to say it was their attempt to strike out at the former president. Both authors resented what they perceived Wilson to let happen, when Germany was treated miserably after the war. For Bullitt, it was a matter of bad politics. And for Freud, well, it was personal. Bullitt, an experienced and worldly man, played the game of personal politics by gathering as many friends as he could during his travels, and one of them became President of the United States in 1933. Franklin Delano Roosevelt made Bullitt the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. However, within a very short time, Bullitt hated Stalin for his repressive policies. In 1936, FDR moved Bullitt to Paris, and there he found his niche. Bullitt had only the best of everything— his chef, his wine cellar, and his rented Chateau in Chantilly. And to top it off, he was able to flirt an impeccable French. Those of that country who mattered took him to their collective heart. During his time there, in the last three years of the 1930s, when France took in Jewish refugees from Germany, Bullitt added Hitler to his list that only previously held Stalin. The phrase FDR used in describing Italy's sudden declaration of war on France, quote, On this 10th day of June, 1940, the hand that held the dagger struck it into the back of its neighbor, unquote, was taken from Bullitt in summing up the situation in France. Before the Germans entered Paris, the U.S. State Department, and Roosevelt, asked William Bullitt to leave. His response was this, U.S. Ambassador Governor Morris stayed in Paris during the French Revolution. Elihu B. Washburn stayed in 1870 when Paris was under German occupation and Wilhelm I was made German Emperor of the Second Reich. Myron T. Herrick was the only ambassador to stay in 1914 when Paris was within range of Germany's Krupp artillery. Therefore, he William Bullitt, would not be the first to break this brave tradition. Bullitt had carefully negotiated a peaceful transfer of power for the city, but all that work was ruined when someone, no one knows who to this day, fired on the German truce officers at the Port St. Denis in the north of the city. General George von Kuchler, the 10th Army commander, who was fresh from bombing Rotterdam, which expedited that country's surrender, made it clear he would not tolerate such behavior and ordered Paris to be destroyed by bombers and artillery. It was to begin at 8 a.m. the next morning. Bullet, panicking just like everyone else in Paris, had to make Berlin see their mistake but had no way to contact anyone directly as the French had cut the telegraph wires on June 11th. But then a chance call came from the American embassy in Bern, Switzerland. He asked them to open a line to Berlin. His message was simple. Paris was declared an open city, and whoever did the shooting did not represent France, its government, or those who remained behind. His plea worked, and Berlin contacted Kukler. The general agreed to try this again. So he contacted the French commander of the Paris region, General Henri Fernand Dentz, but he refused to talk to the Germans. His orders were to provide security for the city, not to talk of handing power over to anyone. This was more the letter of his orders than the spirit, but his wounded pride is certainly understandable. Kukler, however, responded with You will send someone with authority to negotiate, or Paris will be destroyed. Dents relented and sent two officers, about 12 miles north of Paris, at the appointed deadline of 5 a.m. An agreement was reached 30 minutes later. Kugler then canceled the bombardment orders. Bullitt had played a major role in saving his favorite city and his second country. The Germans marched into Paris on the morning of June 14, 1940, but would leave again on August 25, 1944. Those within Paris, of all nationalities, would then be forced to take stock of what they did and didn't do during those 50 months.